0: Welcome to The Scoop on Sunday. My name is Thomas Copeland. Stay with us for the next two hours here on Facebook Live for the latest news at Queen's and beyond. We're all still at home, out of the Students' Union, but we have one of our busiest shows for you tonight. There's so much on the agenda, so please do stay with us. There's one big story on everybody's mind. Students in Northern Ireland are to get a £500 payment from Stormont due to the disruption caused by the COVID pandemic. That means £500 for the almost 40,000 students in the universities and further education colleges across Northern Ireland. We're going to be joined by Grainne Gavine, president of the Queen Students' Union, to find out more. And we'll also be asking her all about the SU elections as the race starts to kick off for that as well. What about those students, though, who are left out of this scheme? We're going to be chatting to international students and Northern Irish students who are studying in the rest of the UK and Ireland, finding out how they feel as their Northern Ireland counterparts celebrate the extra money in the bank. This week, the scoop exclusively revealed that Queen's University splashed out over £50,000 on the Vice-Chancellor's Lodge last year. It's a property where the Vice-Chancellor lives rent-free on top of his £300,000 remuneration package. We'll be taking that story apart with a former Elms residence giving their perspective on the accommodation that Queen's provided to them. Plus, as the vaccine rollout in the UK and in Northern Ireland increases in pace, we're going to be chatting to students on the ground in the Republic of Ireland and in the USA to understand how the EU and American vaccination deployments are going so far. Plus, we'll be looking back at this week on the Scoop News blog, chatting with writers on subjects like OCD, the test and trace apps, and the SU election explainer. Uh, we've got all your usual favourites as well. Updates from trendy, sporty, good news scoops. So there's loads to get stuck into. Please do stay with us. It's all here on The Scoop on Sunday, uh, but we want to hear from you too. Send us your questions, send us your comments over the next two hours. Here is how you can get in touch with us.
1: Contact us now. Text 07848866580 Email the scoop at queensradio.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter.
0: Okay, let's dive in then. Uh, students in Northern Ireland are getting that £500 payment from the Stormont Executive due to the disruption caused by Covid. So it's from the Economy Ministry, part of a wider support package of nearly 40 million. So that means uh, 40,000 students. In universities and further education colleges across Northern Ireland are going to get five hundred pounds. With me is Grain McGavin, president of the Queen Student Union. Uh, Grain, loads to talk about here. Uh, let's start nice and easy. How, how did we get here to the five hundred quid? What's the journey looked like to here, and what's your involvement been?
2: So it has been a really lengthy protest to get to this point, um, to get this victory for students. Um, over the past few months, or not few months, but the past eleven months. Um, so I started my role in July, but uh, pandemic started just oh, under a year ago, uh, and from then, um, the Students' Union has been involved in. Um, has been involved in campaigns with Years USA, so whether that be um, an initial campaign that started at the start of the pandemic and then that progressed into the Students Deserve Better campaign, uh, we were part of that. We were also, um, we have met um, a number of times, well we met once with the um, Committee for the Economy um, so the committee that sort of holds the minister to your account, uh, we met with them, but we have also communicated with them a number of times. Um, we have also been part of an all-party group on higher and further education. Now, this was set up by our counterparts over in Ulster University, Shins Union, um, but with myself, their president, Collette, and um, NUSUSA president, Ellen Fairn as standing members on that. So while um, we... While it is the MLAs that sort of have the power um, to sort of bring stuff, table things for the agenda um, and vote on things in these all-party groups, we very, as standard members, we have a really important part to play there and part of those discussions.
0: Mm-hmm. Green, Green. I wonder. A lot of students are probably now looking at the government, and they're they're quite pleased because they've got five hundred quid in their bank account that they didn't have before, and the money comes from the government, it comes from the taxpayer. Uh, if you had to rate, if you had to rate out of ten, how the Northern Ireland Executive has engaged with students over this pandemic? Uh, th- wh- I mean, what what out of ten would you give them?
2: <laughs> so, if I was going with. Um so I'd say if I was going with the Executive and the Department for the Economy, I would go with, with ourselves as a union, I would go with a two or three, uh, kind of mm. low. I know that they have spoke with, um, I know that they have met with USA, but sort of we work in a localised way with Queen's students and with Queen's University and they haven't really come near us at all. Um, but we know that there has been some meetings in, Parties within the executive have wanted to meet with us and have had conversations with us, but the executive and the department as a whole have mm-hmm. been fairly limited in their interactions with us. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's fair to say, you know, Grain, and we'll talk in a second about negatives. And we're we'll, immediately after this, we'll be engaging with some students who haven't got the payment. It's a it's a policy that a lot of it's been broadly welcomed, but you know, across across the piece. Um, who can students thank, Graham, if if they wanted to thank somebody uh, for for five hundred quid in their account? Is it the unions? Is it one of the political parties? Um, now, obviously, you are coming from a union yourself, but uh, who who put in the who put in the
3: hard work here?
2: Students themselves. They like they really did the brunt of the work here, whether they were. Tweeting their frustrations, making it public in the public sphere. or They were tweeting their frustrations, or they were contacting their uh, local MLAs, their local MPs, or even their local councillors. You no know, students through their the tools that students have, social media, um, you no know, their friend groups, getting things out in that way, using the networks that they have via classes and the, um and things. While they are limited this year, students have used what they have at their disposal to make sure that this issue of student of the needs the student needs this year have not never been not on the public agenda it's been something consistently no know, we know through um some some political parties here and there throughout the year have raised this um in the assembly have asked questions and stuff and they have to some degree kept that pressure on um, the executive but I think the students really deserve a pat on the back. What, what, do you, what
4: do
0: you say then I wonder going to the political parties who are now uh, an awful lot of p- pushing out the graphics saying that they got the students 500 pounds uh, it seems across again across the board everybody's slightly guilty here all of the political parties at least in part trying to claim responsibility for this win what do you say to them?
2: No we say thank you for supporting students in the way in the ways that Jews can, but um there is something quite interesting in the fact that for eleven months students have been doing the brunt of that students and their unions. But no, we're only rep as a union. We're representing what students are telling us and what they're frustrated about. So if students weren't using, if students weren't the vocal themselves and telling us what they wanted, we wouldn't. We would have very little to be doing at this point in time. Um, but students have not putting the pressure on and it's really interesting that the brunt of the work from political parties came two or three weeks ago whenever there was announced whenever it was revealed that um there was 300 million unspent by the executive on COVID relief and that's whenever people realized right students have been chatting to us and complaining and uh, vocalizing their concerns for the past year and there's so much money left over now we need to do something. Students are, should never have been an afterthought. That money mm-hmm. should have been used before this. And mm-hmm. I think parties realised, right, we have to do something now. This money's there. But mm-hmm. that, the support that we've seen over the past three weeks wasn't there the entirety through Do you, through
0: the do you think there's a little bit of political opportunism there then, Gray? And somebody spotted some spare money that was lying around and thought, who should we give it to? Rather than what you perceive to be a sustained support for students' needs and interests.
2: There has been political parties that have that we have worked and political representatives that we have worked really well with and who have sort of kept that line of communication up with us. Um, but it definitely stepped up the gear um over the past three weeks. And um there has been political representatives who have thanked students and their unions for keeping this up, but more so they have been thanking themselves and patting themselves on the back. Um and no, students haven't been, students aren't getting paid an MLA salary to keep this up. Students have been doing this while having, advocating for themselves um, mm. while having to maintain their studies
4: fighting for no.
0: survival. Let me ask you this then Green. so this is £500 that on the most part is going to all students. We know some students are really struggling and 100% uh, they need as much support as they can get, right? Bottom line. Other students though Green, have been furloughed, they may be living at home, some of them are supported by families where there is money in the family and we know that there is a problem with working class kids being underrepresented at our universities across the UK and Ireland actually and then you have some students who are still working part-time from home. Surely those students, the ones un- who fall under those categories, they can live without the £500 and that money could instead be better spent on students or indeed non-students who are literally living on the bread line. Uh, would that not be a better way to spend this money rather than giving it to all students, blank check, across the board?
2: Yeah so this is definitely something that we raised and no we do recognise that there will be some students who need money and who may need more than £500 uh, and who do... Who absolutely need more than five hundred pound. This is a very short term, but a relief for a lot of our students. Um, but so this is something that we raised. The what what our understanding is is that this money has to be spent um by uh, the end of the academic, the the end of the financial year, which for the executive is the end of March. So um, that's another issue um with putting this off so, so long uh, on the part of the executive is that the, this money just has to be put out hard and fast mm. and uh, it doesn't, like there is sort of a problem with where it's being targeted. Um,
0: so, so, so that's interesting, Grain. Are you kind of saying that you would have preferred, uh, now I understand you advocate on behalf of students, so we're going to stick it to students, you would have preferred if the money was targeted towards the students who needed the most support rather than 500 points for each and every student regardless of their needs.
2: Well, what I would have preferred was had um, students and students unions been a part of the decision making, they look at all the options available to them. Um, Will that be a targeted approach um, with some additional funding um, into more targeted areas? I think that would have been something that would have been done. I don't think any student um, is going to turn their nose up at £500 in their bank accounts, um, but definitely... Well, no, no
0: I understand that. No, I mean, every student's going to be happy to have £500, pound, yeah. but I wonder, what, what I'm kind of hearing slightly green is that if you, you would have had the opportunity, you would have preferred to have a targeted approach to students, where the students who needed the money got the money, and those who didn't, didn't get it or didn't get as much. Is that a fair approximation of your thinking?
2: Yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, okay, it is the five five hundred pound is a short term relief, and no, we are aware. No, we we're as a union, we're welcoming the fact that we're getting that there is money was going to be put aside, um, for us to look at, um, no, for mental health provision from students unions and stuff, and there's going to be more money put into hardship funds, but no, they like the executive are putting money into the hardship fund while not making the process of application for the hardship fund any easier. And that's mm-hmm. across the board, whether you're a Queen student, St Mary's, Jan Mellis, Ulster. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all very complex um, mm-hmm. processes. Uh-
0: uh, and I think actually that's a really important issue, Graeme, and it's it's one that we're going to explore, I think, over the next week or so, the barriers to access for the hardship fund, because that is certainly something that's been raised on uh, uh, a number of occasions. Let me ask you this though, Graeme, because this is something that I'm hearing, and this I suppose comes down to your job as representing students. Uh, students have access to uh, low interest, easy access maintenance loans in a way that lots of other uh, constituencies in the population don't. Those loans can go towards rents, they go towards food, they go towards living costs. I wonder what you would say to maybe a taxi driver out there who's watching students celebrate getting 500 quid from the government. When that taxi driver has seen their income decimated, their business destroyed, they don't have access to the kind of loans that students have access to. They don't have access at all to the kind of hardship funds that that students have access to. I wonder how to somebody like that you would justify 20 million pounds being divvied up to 40,000 students?
2: I think, you know, what I believe, like, and I think a lot of people out there are probably of the same belief that I am, that there has been so many people across our societies and across our communities who do feel completely left behind um, and who do feel neglected by the sort of incompetent, not sort of, by the incompetence of an executive in dealing with the pandemic. What, as a student representative and I know you alluded to this, i have been working particularly representing students but no um i have se- like i have seen um self employed people struggle i have seen um no i have seen so so many people across the board struggle they have been furloughed but students are also no, you have students who are self-employed. You have students who are furloughed. You have people, you know, and students don't have the same access to um the likes of universal credit and housing benefits and things like that. And as well, you're stu- you're meant to be studying. This is sort of something outside of COVID, but needs looked at in a long-term thing as well. But. You're meant to be studying full if you're a full-time student, you're meant to be studying full-time. That means what 35 to 40 hours a week, you're meant to be either in class, reading, doing your studies, doing assignments, doing assessments. You're a full-time student. And then you either go home for the weekend or you use your evenings um, to as sort of like if you were working. Um, that's your time, but the reality is, for a lot of, for most students, is their evenings and their weekends are used to work. Students have to work and struggle um, to mm-hmm. be at university because we know that those maintenance loans and those maintenance grants are not enough. And for a lot of people, know even within um, even within university accommodation, um, their student loans won't cover the entirety mm-hmm. of their rent. Um there's massive massive, massive issues there the students are facing. Okay. And that those those loans aren't don't cover the bare minimum mm-hmm. for
5: a lot of people.
0: Yeah, let, let's talk practicalities then for those people who really need the money and soon. When can students go and expect to get the money and how if you if you know the answer to that
4: question?
2: So our understanding is that students will um will be receiving this money from mid to the end of March. Um as it says they need to get this money out by the end of March. So um Hopefully within the next sixty-eight weeks, um, six to eight weeks, not sixty-eight weeks. I know my accent <laughs> messes that up, um. But um, now I know that the university now the money is being given to the university to give to students, and I um I understand that the university is now currently looking at a few different mm-hmm. ways, um, at how they're going to put this out. But so, but students don't have to. My understanding is that students don't have to apply to this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're eligible, you're eligible. Um, now, I would just tell people to keep an eye on their um, on their emails to make sure on those communications, which I'm sure people are. People are eager to get that 500 pound. Um, but as well, um, one thing I would advise is maybe make sure that the details, so your um, your financial details, so your bank account stuff, is updated on CUSIS. Um, because that's a concern that the university is not everyone sort of updates those. And, okay. Um, so that's useful so actually,
0: Grain. So we'll that's update. Make sure that your financial details are updated on qsys I think we'll actually put that on our social media as well. That's very useful. As a final question, Grain on this five hundred quid. Uh, uh, subjects what about those students who are left out in a second on the show we're going to be chatting to Huda and to Eva who for different reasons are left out of this scheme what's your message to students like that who feel as they feel sidelines left out left behind ignored what's your message to those students
2: so I sort of my message to those students is sort of comes in two parts but I will be brief with them you absolutely do not deserve to be left out. You deserve to get the support you need. You deserve to be equally supported in the way that home um, UK and um, not and EU international students are being supported. Um, you completely completely deserve that because you have struggled um as a practical bit of advice to people is i know that the as i, I already said this the uh, process of application for applying the hardship can be complicated and difficult and time consuming um if you get in touch with um advice su they're an independent as uh, so they're part of the students union but they are independent of the university so they give impartial and confidential advice um and they can advise you, they can support you through your application for the hardship fund
0: okay um let's move on Grain, if you don't mind i want to talk about the su elections don't worry we're not going to get too personal in it you've decided <laughs> not to stand uh, in, in the next year an, an initial question two questions i had to start off with Grain. one why should students who are listening to this care about su elections and two i mean you took up uh, your position um, in what, o- August or so? It seems like these elections are really very early in the term and some people could be forgiven for thinking, well, I've barely got to know or got a grip of what this current issue cohort mm-hmm. is doing before we're on to the next one.
2: Yeah, so um, the reason why you should absolutely care and vote and take part in these elections is um, you get to be, you get to decide who will be in the rooms with politicians talking about what you need. Um, I'm a big believer in sort of the power of a union, whether that's trade, tenant, or student unions. I'm a big person that believes in those. And um and I think that um, no, as students sometimes we can feel like we aren't connected to the overall uh, democratic process that we have here, whether well, that being electing councillors, MLAs or MPs, a lot of the time student issues are dubbed off as that's cultures coming into Belfast or it is considered um, a <laughs> Or it's considered, or if you're from one of the culture country areas, that's Belfast problem. Uh, and I know we have more than just campuses in Belfast, but very much they're seen as a issue, disconnected. And a lot of whenever you read manifestos and leaflets that come through, a lot of students can't really resonate with everything that they're seeing yeah. because they're represented on those. Mm-hmm. Student unions provide give you that direct connection to the mm-hmm. democratic process it, it, it empowers students and gives students mm-hmm. representatives and what about that um,
0: timing issue green do you think the elections are a bit early
2: and, um, and not I this think, year
0: i mean uh, institutionally at queen's
2: um i think it's a difficult one uh, because you no know, come sort of whenever you go into march period and into the easter um that is sort of whenever people start students start to refocus on uh, on their exams and their deadlines and I know that uh, the SU as a whole um, is trying to catch a time where students are least likely to be annoyed at being <laughs> asked to vote for people and to do something um, mm-hmm. and to sort of take time out of their day. Um, okay to, well to that process yeah. Um, but uh, yeah.
0: Understand Understand your point. Um, Graeme, uh, are SU reps worth the money? So each of the six SU reps, the QUB is paid eighteen thousand pounds. That amounts to one hundred and eight thousand pounds in total for the salaries. Is that a fair amount of money? Do you think that QUB students get one hundred and eight thousand pounds worth of representation?
2: It's it's eighteen thousand.
0: Yeah, no, eighteen thousand. So six of them. So one hundred eight thousand. Oh, yes,
2: yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm not a good. Person no, don't worry. So, um, I absolutely do think that it is worth the money. Um, no, you're paying um, six people to represent you, and oftentimes, no student officers aren't just doing the ninety-five. Oftentimes, they're doing the nine to nine or the nine to ten o'clock at night. Um, no, and be that making your voice heard. No, I sit on over fifty committees, um, and I represent or in and around fifty committees, and I make the student voice head on all of those committees. But no, you're not just in that committee for an hour. You have to read the papers for an hour. You have to take the actions after the meeting. And, mm-hmm. and and as well, you need to run campaigns and you need to listen to students. You need to be engaged in missions. The amount of work that's done, it's they represent students at that level is absolutely worth the money. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: let me ask you, Screen, because I've only ever been to Queen's and you've only ever been to Queen's. Sometimes I speak to students, Green, at Queen's who... Uh, and not all, definitely not all, but some students have basically no idea who their SU reps are and don't engage and don't follow that aspect of university life. Do you think that, and again, it's not you in particular, I think it's the es- could be the SU in general previous years, do you think that there isn't a strong enough engagement between the wider student body and the SU reps at Queen's? Um, I do think,
2: no, I don't think that this is like a lack of effort of trying to engage with people. I do think um, a lot of people know. I remember during many campaigns that I've been involved with, standing with a clipboard, trying to get students to sign a petition or something as part of a student union campaign. And a lot of students do just, and I remember word for word, almost verbatim, something a student said to me and it stayed with me. I honestly, and that person said to me, I honestly just want to get my degree and leave and <laughs> don't really want to. And I think that a lot of people um, are sometimes feeling that way. Um, but I think what I will say is this year we have had, and now I know that sort of coming off um, COVID engaging with people is really difficult. I know a lot of students have felt really disconnected and we're really trying our best to do this. And hopefully by securing this additional funding for mental health provision, we will be able to do a lot, lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, so we have been fighting for more, for more investment from the university into the student experience Mm -hmm. um, as well. I think this year, a lot of students have been more engaged and more aware politically and in what the union is doing. You no, know, I have seen a few posts that uh, on QB Love about what the work has been about what the union has been doing. I,
0: I think not- you guys agree, and I think you, I think that's you, I think that's you guys posting about yourselves. <laughs> I swear, one, one or two, one so or two of them, be I believe, but they're too consistent the now. They're All too right. consistent. They're too consistent now, Grain. There's too many of them now. I believe it if it was one or two. Uh, Green, <laughs> I, I want to ask you a final question because uh, this was uh, an article published by The Scoop earlier in the week that exclusively revealed the QUB Vice-Chancellor's residence. Uh, £50,000 was spent on expenses for it last year. Uh, a gardener covering cleaning costs for the 35-room Grace and Favour mansion at Lennox Vale. This is on top of the uh, the Vice-Chancellor's uh, remuneration package of £300,000 and he lives in the property rent-free. We're going to be chatting about this a little bit later on on the show. You commented on the piece and it's in the article, but just for those who haven't had a chance to read it, what's your perspectives on £50,000 being spent on a Vice-Chancellor's lodge last year at QUB?
2: I think that this is just an indication of the inequality that exists within the higher education system at the moment um, and has done for years. Um, I think if we're really going to come out of COVID and if we're going to exist through COVID telling people we're all in this together and we're going to try to come out of COVID um, in a more equal society um, and try to sort of recover in an equal way, um, I think the university really needs to ask itself, is it fair that we're covering rent, electric, Wi-Fi um, and even the TV license um, for um, for the vice-chancellor whenever we're pointing a to whenever we're whenever our own students have to seek out and mm-hmm. apply for hardship funds just to pay for those exact mm-hmm. things
0: although Grain, I suppose uh, the other way of looking at this is that uh, Queen's University is a Russell Group university it's one of the oldest universities in the UK certainly in Ireland um, does it not seem commensurate with that heritage that uh, the vice-chancellor would have a property where he can host guests host big meetings point one that's point one and I wonder Grain, if a flat came with your position as SU president would you turn it down
2: um um i quite like um i quite like where i live so i don't know um but um but i don't know that's a I suppose i don't know until i'm in, until i was off it but i know for a fact the next five or 10 SU presidents probably won't get that offered to them. Um, but I think, no, there is that point, And I think you're right. Like the, it does come with sort of the ceremony, like that sort of ceremony thing of being in the role. But no, you're getting, like the vice chancellor is getting 300k a year. And then he doesn't even have to worry about rent. He doesn't have to worry about electric or wifi and those kinds of things. Whenever our students are, get no they're in precarious um insecure work um and no we have even had students have to take action uh mm-hmm. because of how they've been treated as workers and how they've been paid and mm-hmm. you know we, during the pandemic and no staff have been on strike or numerous times over the past few years um because of casualization um not getting proper pay for the work that they do but no, the vice chancellor doesn't have to worry about any of the things that students worry about day and daily.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll look forward to the invitation to the, the SU president's flat for the House Party when that eventually comes. <laughs> I'm sure the university would respond to that, Grain, and say that they have paused accommodation contracts, for example, they've increased the amount available in hardship funds, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll have a, a longer in-depth chat about that later on in the show. Grain and Gavin, thank you so much for being with us, SU president at QUB. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, this is The Scoop on Sunday. Now let's carry on this conversation about the £500 points for students in Northern Ireland. Many students have been delighted by the news, but others have found themselves disappointed as they've discovered that they are left out of the scheme. International students, part-time students and Northern Irish students who are studying in the UK or Ireland, uh, they've all been left out. None of them are included in the scheme at this stage. To chat more, I'm joined by Huda al Bagali, international student from Dubai studying at QUB and Eva Lin, a medical student at Lancaster University from Balamina. Uh, Huda, why don't we start with you? You've been left out of the £500 scheme as an international student. Um, when the news came across your phone, as I'm sure that's where you saw it, how did you feel when you discovered that you wouldn't be getting any money from the government?
5: When I first found out that students were getting 500 pounds, I automatically hoped that I was a part of the whole thing. And I was just really hopeful because as an international student, just because we can pay the, the high amount of fees doesn't mean we necessarily can afford the whole living standard easily. But then later on, when I did some digging and found out that international students were excluded from it, I was hurt, but I wasn't surprised. This is not the first time international students have been left out of something. I just wish that they would mean all students when they said something that was meant to be given to students. And I also did like the whole math. I was like, there's barely 3000 international students at Queen's University. Giving each of them 500 pounds would just be over like a million and a half pounds, roughly like a rough estimate. And Queen's has been given that budget. So I was just I was like, it wasn't that hard to do. It's it's disappointing. But I'm not surprised mm-hmm.
0: you seem to suggest Herr Huda that it's part of a wider thing in your mind of international students being undervalued or sidelined or whatever what do you mean by that is that something you you really feel
5: yeah because international students we even though we make up for a small amount like amount of students at university we pay almost three times the fees that a local student would pay yet whenever there's any decision being made, international students are rarely taken into account. For example, when it comes to rent breaks or when it comes to grants like these, we can't even apply for student loan the way you guys do. So if we have to apply for student loan, we have to apply them through private lenders or we have to really hope to get a scholarship. We're just not included despite Mm -hmm. making majority of the finances in terms Mm -hmm. of like personal finances. So it's just... It's always been that way.
0: Okay. Um, Eva, uh, you're studying in Lancaster as well. I suppose, same question. You see 500 quid for Northern Irish students coming across your phone. Did you at first think it was for you and then subsequently find out? I mean, how, how does that feel to be left out of the scheme?
6: Do you know what? Initially, I was just happy that they were giving it out to someone because this has obviously been such a hard time for all students. I believe they're calling it like a student hardship grant or something and all students are struggling right now so initially I was just you know grateful they had made moves there Um, and then just very disappointed and frustrated to be honest that it didn't extend to us in the UK and in the Republic of Ireland as well just because like we have the same struggles and who who is the same we all have the same struggles like all students do so it's a bit it feels a bit half-hearted to give it to like some students
0: and not all of us. Yeah, and you're studying in Lancaster, and I suppose actually in some ways, uh, Eva, you obviously cannot live at home, therefore you have to pay higher fees as well. You're probably, there's probably even more outlay for you, and for Huda as well actually, but you know there's even more outlay for you than a student who's studying domestically here in Northern Ireland
6: yeah absolutely that's what i would say like huda and i are in the same boat we haven't got the choice of living at home um we haven't like we have to pay rent um we have to book student accommodation we have to pay higher fees um i'm lucky i get student finance but the student finance that we get from student finance northern ireland isn't isn't as high as what the equivalent student in england will get so, my fellow course mates from England get more student finance from my, me if they came from an identical background, which just isn't fair. Do you know the £500 pound would just about make up the difference in my student finance and theirs? So, I just, not for the first time in this pandemic, feel like we have been kind of forgotten about.
0: Mm-hmm. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Not for the first time. Do you think this is part of a wider kind of pattern, Eve? Um,
6: well, I don't know if you remember October when the case rates started going through the roof and students were blamed for it. I spent pressures week in my bedroom by myself. I am a medical student. i my own on placement. I couldn't afford to catch COVID at the time and still on the news every day it was you know us bad awful students having all these non-existent parties that were getting blamed for COVID cases rising and you know I don't know a single student at university this year that hasn't suffered with mental health problems because of being at university this year and we get no acknowledgement for it we just get like negative press.
0: (laughs) Yeah Um, I'm intrigued as well because I want to talk about um uh, the pressure on you as a medical student, Eva Hudo, you've been on our show before talking about flying uh, and back and forth from uh, Dubai. Now those, you know, those flights are expensive, and we've talked about this before. And um, in, in a lot of ways, similar to Eva, I mean, your outlay in order to get to and from university, as you said, to pay for a university, to pay for your uh, accommodation costs and living costs, are all dramatically increased as a result of being an international student, right?
5: Yeah, and on top of that. Especially because it's a pandemic, I also had to go the extra steps to ensure that I am safe to be back here, and I'm not endangering other people as well. I've got both shots of the vaccine. I have been in perfect health. I've taken multiple. I'm taking multiple COVID tests since I've been back, just to make sure that I am okay to get onto campus whenever it's time to. I'm going. I'm not only paying extra. I'm also taking extra steps just to be left out.
0: Let me tell. You, let me ask you this, Huda, because I suppose some people uh, will maybe, and they because maybe they don't know enough, they will maybe feel more sorry for Eva than they do for you, Huda, because they will think to themselves, well, international students are all really wealthy, and that's why they can afford the really high tuition fees, and they pay really high tuition fees, and they fly all over the world, and they come across the world to come here. They come from really wealthy backgrounds, and they can afford to pay for this. What would you say to the people who are thinking that at the moment?
5: I'd say that that's not fair because... I know for a fact that my tuition fees are earned by a mom who is stretching herself beyond her means to just make sure I get a quality of education and I get a quality of life. And just because I'm able to make the fee doesn't necessarily mean that I'm really rich or that it's just, it's quite difficult. I feel quite guilty kind of having to have my mom work just so I can get a quality of education and it's not because i expect that it's because i have the privilege of having a parent who's working hard for me and any sort of help that i can give in return i wish i
0: could yeah do you feel I, guilty from do you feel guilty as a result of that huda
5: i do i very much do and had this 500 grant been also been extended to international students part time students i know that that 500 pounds would have meant the world to my mom it would have made her life just a tiny bit easier that she wouldn't have to have worried about how how I'm going to manage sort of for the next Mm -hmm. while. Mm
0: -hmm. What's it like being an international student on the other side of the globe in the middle of a pandemic?
5: It It is tough. I do not have the support of a family. I live on my own. My mom constantly worries about me and that naturally affects me because I don't want her to sort of be worried about my health about my living situation am i risking myself every time i go to get groceries even and it's just really difficult especially mental health wise
0: mm-hmm. we had somebody on the show last week uh who'd uh, called esther who was saying uh, she had stayed here over christmas and was in contact with international students extensively and said that there's a loneliness that international students are feeling right now at Queen's, and I'm sure at other universities at Lancaster or wherever else international students are, there's a loneliness that is just not the same for students who are from Northern Ireland. Is that something that you're feeling?
5: Yeah. I mean, even though I do have friends here, that, which I'm quite lucky compared to some international students who are just very newly flown in here and don't have that connections, given the pandemic, I still feel very left out and alone considering i don't have my own family i don't have people i can meet on a daily basis here Mm -hmm. if i'm for example i haven't left my house since tuesday unless that one short 10 minute trip to the center to get some groceries and that was about it Mm -hmm. and it gets really gloomy it gets really heavy to get through these days this way Mm
0: -hmm. how would you sum up how your mental health has fared as a result of all this
5: It's taken quite a hit. It's quite difficult. I I can't necessarily put it in very precise words, but overall it's just, I'm feeling, I'm left feeling very disappointed and very hurt.
0: Mm
5: -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. as if I, as a student don't matter as much.
0: Yeah. Eva as well, I mean, you're a medical student. Uh, What a time to be a medical student uh what's your daily routine looking like these days are you in are you on sort of the front line at times are you in hospitals are you studying at the moment give us an idea of what your life looks like at the moment
6: yeah I am on placement a couple of days a week and then the rest of the time it's all online so I have on the typical week I'm in two days placement and then three days online learning and I'm quite lucky I have I also live by myself but I have a bubble here in Lancaster and I I have friends on my course that I see on the days I'm in placement and stuff so it is it is lonely it's not the social life that you come to uni for but I have like mm. a-, a level measure of a social life which thank god because I'm such an extrovert I- like <laughs> I really, I really thrive off of other people. So if I didn't, like as hard as placement is and as emotionally like tiring as it is at the moment, I'm grateful I have it because it's social, like it's social interaction.
0: Well, that that was going to be my question, Eva, which is what, what does your placement actually look like? I mean, are you in wards? Are you, uh, where do you go in your placement? What are you doing? What are you seeing?
6: It is ward-based. Um, at the moment I'm in surgery, which is like less COVID-y. Um, before Christmas I was in respiratory, which was to be honest with you just mostly COVID patients um but yeah it's so it changes it kind of depends what kind of like part of the body you're in the ward of but at the moment in surgery it's like a lot more like the patients are generally pretty well and they're just Mm -hmm. doing surgery and
0: give us an idea I wonder, Eva, because a lot of people hopefully who are listening or elsewhere uh will have been fortunate enough not to have been in a hospital over the last number of months, when you were in respiratory, what's the atmosphere like in there at the moment? What's the uh, sort of the general moods, the pressure? Can you kind of sum up what it feels like to be in in places like that right now?
6: Yeah, it's not it's not a good environment. It's not what I went into medicine for. I'm quite sure it's not what anyone went into like the healthcare profession for. Um, COVID I know that we're kind of turning a corner now with these vaccines but when I was in that rotation it was before the vaccine was approved and everyone was so sick that it was completely out of everyone's control Um, and it is a really serious illness I feel like people our age kind of forget that but like there was no standard COVID patient it affected everyone it affected people completely randomly and it just it's an incredibly lonely place to be because everyone's so busy like, there's no one, like, you just have to time to do your jobs and that's it. There's no visitors for patients. The patients are in for these, like, extended periods of time completely alone, which you can imagine it's not, it's not a fun place to be in hospital anyway. Never mind when you're not able to see people that you love and people that you care about.
0: And how does it affect a student like yourself, Eva, who's sort of new on the block in terms of, of medicine and the overall scheme of things, going home every night, having spent the day on a respiratory ward with a certain number of people who won't be there the next
3: day.
6: Yeah, to be honest, it was like, it was my first ever clinical rotation. Um, it was like, I'm in my first year of the clinical years. And um, I it I did have a panic moment or a panic term, if you will, uh, panicking about what, like, this not being the career that I wanted to do and me not being able to, like do this forever and I know professionals in the wards who have been doing it for their entire careers were feeling the same And because and I can't stress this enough this is no one in the NHS has ever worked through anything like this before so um it was just like very like emotionally tiring is the only word I can say like but obviously like the reward of medicine that I'm kind of getting now that we are kind of seeing just isn't really there or wasn't really there
0: Mm -hmm. and then uh, to top it all off, um, uh, you don't get £500 points from your well, own government.
6: We don't, we don't get the £500, point and medical students don't get the £2,000 that every other healthcare student's getting either. So, And I don't want to, like, I'm so pleased that student nurses and paramedics and everything are getting the money because it's so well-deserved. Like, I, I would challenge anyone to work harder than a student nurse on a ward. But um, I just constantly feel like I'm left behind, like <laughs> just forgotten about, and um, it's and it's not the uni's fault, it's not the NHS's fault. It just it feels like a problem from Stormont that like they send all of us over here, and that's it. We're not their problem. Yeah. At all.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear your perspective there, Eva. I know I'm know i quite sure they'd come back with any number of things to say in return, but I think your testimony stands on its own two feet. Uh, Huda, I'll give you the final word, a kind of message, I suppose, to the government, the, the university, whoever it is. Uh, why should they care about you? Why should they care about international students?
5: Because like every other student, we're a student too. We are doing the work, we're going to our classes, we are also dealing with all of the Jinga pandemic and stretching our entire mental health and brain power beyond their means to be able to keep up with everything. And just because either we're in a different situation than the rest of the students doesn't mean we're any less of a student, or we're not as in need of help. Mm -hmm. We're all on a level, just students, regardless. Mm -hmm. That's all.
0: Thank you both so much, uh, very much. That was such an interesting conversation. I took so much away from that. So thank you so much. Uh, Huda Albogeli, international student at QUB, Eva Lynn, medical student at Lancaster University. Uh, That was such a powerful conversation and I really enjoyed having you both on. So thank you very much. And we will have to have you both on again uh, sometime in the very near future. Thank you, guys. Uh, This is The Scoop on Sunday. Let's take a look now at what's happened this week on the Scoop News site. With me is Jonathan Turner, pharmacy student at QUB. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Uh, you wrote a Thank piece you. this week entitled uh, OCD is not a quirk. You have OCD yourself and part of the pharmacy uh, pharmacy school's mental health and well-being team. So you've got a good bit of experience behind you writing on this issue. Um, let's start at the very beginning thing, Jonathan. Uh, why did you write this article? Why, you know, Why is this an issue that you care about?
7: Yes, of course. Um, like you mentioned, I have OCD myself and have had for many years. Um, so that's part of the reason why I'm quite passionate about discussing mental health anytime I get a chance, really just the personal experience. Um, and the real reason I saw uh, or thought of the idea to come up with this article was I've seen a lot of people online mentioning things like, Oh, I'm so OCD or, Oh, that really triggers my OCD whenever things aren't lined up right, for example. Um, And I've realised, actually, that's quite a harmful representation to give because it's almost trivialising it. It's just making it more like a character trait than actually a debilitating disorder, which it actually is. So I thought I'd actually like to sort of give my opinion on that and maybe help address some of the misunderstanding around it. Mm
0: -hmm. Is it ignorance, do you think? Is it ignorance, do you think, Jonathan, or is it a a genuine you know, uh, people just being flippant. I mean, what is it that you think is causing people to say this? I mean, is is it deliberately harmful or is it just people just not knowing enough about OCD?
7: Yeah, I don't... I think in most circumstances, it isn't actually someone trying to be deliberately harmful. I think it's really more a problem of the media and how it's representing it and, and how that actually leads to that misunderstanding. And I think that a lot of the time... It's been shown in shows like, for example, The Big Bang Theory or Monk. There's characters there like Sheldon Cooper who, yeah, it shows that they have OCD, but it's more just part of their character. It's more done for humour. doesn't actually show the side of it, which is the mental side of it, which causes a lot of people problems. Well, Well, let's do a kind of... Let's do a, a, a
0: face-to-face comparison then. So you talked about you know the character, of Sheldon Cooper. A lot of his character traits, like you say, are there for comedy, there for laughs. Can you give us an idea then, Jonathan, of, I mean, what's real life OCD like? I mean, what's, how has yeah. your life in the past, people you know been affected? And, and then, you know, what's that comparison look like just to make that real for, for people? Who yeah, are listening? of
7: course. Um, well, as I've mentioned in my article as well, what OCD actually entails rather than the stereotype of, needing things to be lined up neatly, for example, or always just washing your hands. It's really two key components to it are number one, the obsessions, um, which come in the form of intrusive thoughts. It's kind of similar to if someone were to come up to you and say, don't think of a pink elephant, then the first thing you're going to think of is a pink elephant. And in that way, you're getting unwanted thoughts, something like, oh, did I harm someone? Did I cause offense? people might get religious thoughts that they've committed blasphemy, that sort of thing, and come in a whole range of different thoughts that are individual to each person. But those are the obsessions. And whenever you have those, you often then need to go and to sort of dispel them or to remove them. And you'll need to do a ritual, which is where the actual compulsion in OCD comes in. And again, that could be the form of hand washing, needing things to be lined up flipping a light switch a certain number of times, or it could be mental as well. Things like avoidance, trying to avoid certain situations can also be part of that too. So it's important just to be aware of and what, those. And what about, Jonathan,
0: y- your own experiences and the experiences of those you know? Can you can you give us some sort of real-life examples of, of what o- the effect that OCD has had on, on your life?
7: Yes, of course. Um, personally, I've had a whole range of different OCD thoughts myself. Whenever I was younger, it was more the stereotypical side of things. It would have been more, I want things to be tidy or a certain way. And if they weren't, it didn't feel right until I had them quite right. Um, but as I've gotten older, uh, I've noticed it's actually gone more into the mental side of things. For example, I would have health anxiety quite a bit. And part of my intrusive thought would be, oh, I'm worried I have some sort of sickness So the compulsion would be then to check or like look up online, which is definitely the thing you never want to do. Um, And that sort of thing. Even around uni, uh, contamination fears. I used to have things like worrying certain lab chemicals had gotten onto pens or pencils, so take them Mm -hmm. home and wash them at the end of the day.
0: Um, Uh, What about this compulsion, Jonathan? I'm just trying to imagine in my head, you know, when when you get the intrusive thoughts, or something comes into your head, what 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 feeling do you have in between that moment and the completion of you know uh, the, the task that yeah. you feel that you need to do? I mean, how strong is that emotion? How how much does that bind you? How do, what does that feel like? It can be very
7: strong. It is just generally the best way I can describe it. Personally, is it doesn't feel right. It feels like. Just, it's a sense of uneasiness it is quite difficult to describe in a way but just you feel a need to do something to remedy the situation which is where the compulsions come in and it's just it's different like I say for different people but it can be very difficult to actually move on from that thought and um, one way I've actually managed to manage it myself is to tell myself right I need to think about this later so I've noticed if I actually come back to that thought later then it diminishes a bit Um, but actually getting out of that initial cycle of rumination it's called just going around and around in your head that same thought cycle Mm -hmm. can be quite difficult to move away from
0: and, and Jonathan, what's the distinction between people who are, there are obviously in life people who are more anxious than others yeah. a, a, on a genuine personality level. You know, some people are more, some people are more confident about things. They're happy, uh, you know, a bit more yeah. cavalier, whatever it is. What's the line, do you think, between something, somebody being just a bit more of an anxious or careful or, um, you know, um, a c- consummate person and suffering from OCD, I mean, how, how
7: would yeah. you dis- distinguish those two things? Yeah, well, I've seen, uh, even earlier, I've seen mentioned that there is a distinction at the moment, especially between your own mental health and having a mental health issue. And um, Anyone can have good mental health, bad mental health days, of course. Um, but the actual distinction of a mental health issue is it really does impact on your day-to-day life. and um, It's something you can't really step away from or fully alleviate uh, for example OCD there's not really pure as such it's more just learning to be able to manage it and there's different strategies to do that but it's really just the level of impact it has and it can be quite debilitating for people. Mm. And what do you feel Jonathan
0: when you see stuff like you know I don't want to pick on Big Big Bang Theory for example What what do you think in your head when you see uh, representations of OCD like that or perhaps hear somebody know at the next desk to you at the library or on the phone saying oh I'm just so OCD I mean what 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 kind of effect does that have on you?
7: Yeah well you notice just the harm that it can do and makes me think not even on a personal level but for anyone else experiencing OCD that might just be in the early stages of noticing that they have it it might actually diminish what they feel that they have it kind of makes them feel oh, maybe what I have isn't actually that serious when it is. And that can therefore cause people to stop even seeking help or think treating it as serious as it is. So I think that's where the, the real harm that a negative representation can do comes in and where maybe a bit more understanding could be helpful for people.
5: Mm.
7: How many people, Jonathan, do you have an
0: understanding of how many people suffer from OCD? Um, yeah. I, in, in the world
7: or at Queen's or whatever? Yeah, well, in, in, just to take the UK as an example, there's 1.2% of the population uh, actually suffer from OCD. So it's actually quite a lot. And that's obviously where the importance of making that distinction comes in on what OCD actually is. Mm-hmm. And and as a final sort of question, Jonathan, I'm just seeking to understand you
0: know, how debilitating it can be. And, and, and I suppose that's why you wrote the article, why people need to take it seriously. I mean, wh- what's the most extreme form of OCD that, that you've come across, heard of? and how that's affected somebody's life who suffers from it.
7: Yeah, well, I suppose, again, coming down to misunderstanding, but intrusive thoughts, there is a problem sometimes where people discuss them. Some of them can be quite harmful. Things like worrying that you might kill someone, worrying that you might hurt someone that you love, even unwanted sexual thoughts, that kind of thing. Some of them can be quite graphic, unwanted, intrusive thoughts, and it can be difficult for people to share them because they, that would add into the actual fear of having them that they're a bad person, even though research shows people that have those intrusive thoughts are actually the least likely to ever act on them because it's their greatest fear, often. Mm-hmm.
0: Jonathan, this has been such an interesting conversation. I want to leave you kind of the final word. What would you say to people as a message? You
7: know, what should people know, remember, take forward about OCD? I think it's just really changing your attitude a little bit. If you're about to say something like, I'm so OCD, uh, just consider what that actually means and that there actually can be positive ways to share experiences as well. I've seen on Twitter, a lot of people now are discussing what it's actually like to live with OCD and that can be really good because if you are a with OCD like me, you see someone discussing something that you've felt yourself or that you've thought, you can relate to that and realise that it actually is something that you could maybe go and seek help for. Like I've uh, gone to Queen's Counseling, for example, find that immensely helpful for managing it myself. So there are certainly ways to maybe address what it actually is like.
0: Absolutely. Jonathan, thank you so much. That was a really interesting conversation for me. I know I took a lot away from it. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Your article will be up on our social media as well. So if you want to find out more, you can read Jonathan's article, OCD is not a quirk from the scoop. News site, Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. This thanks is The Scoop on Sunday.
1: Do you want to write for The Scoop News site? Get in touch. Email the scoop at queensradio.org or find us on social media.
0: Okay, now for something completely different. We're joined by Claudia Savage from The Trendy Scoop. Claudia, thanks very much for being with us.
8: Happy to be here again.
0: Fantastic. Let's run through your top recommendations for the week. Why don't we start with the latest on Netflix TV? What should people be watching when they're stuck at home during lockdown, Claudia?
8: So, something that's trending on Netflix at the minute is a new series called Firefly Lane. So, it's about best friends, Tully and Kate, support each other through good times and bad with an unbreakable bond that carries them from their teens to their 40s. So, I think like a lot of a big trend in like the early noughties was like rom-coms sort of things that were targeted towards women but there's a lot of things now about like a lot of shows that focus on female friendship so you see that in like the shows like the Mindy Project and like this show Firefly Lane seems like it's going to be really going down that train of like female friendship and about how like sometimes like your friends can be the loves of your life or your soulmates rather than a romantic partner so that might be a good one for anyone that is single on valentine's day and doesn't feel like watching something that's going to make them
0: depressed Right, right you're definitely not talking about yourself gloria um what? what else can we look for on netflix
8: uh another show on netflix this is a bit of a fun one netflix does a lot of series about like they do a lot of competition shows so a lot of ones they do are like rip-offs of, of great british bake-off or they have different shows about like makeup competitions those sort of like elimination style shows where someone goes home every week. But I don't know if they're getting to the bottom of the barrel or if this is really creative and outside of the box. But the new one is called Blown Away. And it's a glass blowing sculpture competition. So the winner gets every week. So there's t- starts out with 10 sculptors. And every week they have to do a, diff- a different glass blowing challenge. And someone will go home and the winner gets $60,000.
0: Wow. Well, do you know what? I might tune into that and who knows? I might have my expectations shattered. <laughs> right. What about music yeah. then? What about music then, Claudia? Uh, what can we look forward to?
8: Well, anyone that is an avid listener to the Tranny Scoop would have heard my interview with De DeCrow. He has a new song out this week and a new music video. So definitely go and listen to that because his stuff is really great. And if you want to find out more about him, that episode is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
9: Oh, fantastic.
8: Uh, his song, new song's called Not Usually Like This. So really, really good. And uh, make sure to go and listen to that. And the other the other big music announcement that was this week was The Weeknd announced his 2022 tour. So lo- loads and loads of dates on it, presumably because his previous tour was cancelled. So this is like his new tour is going to be an amalgamation of his old tour on mm-hmm. the new tour. But for anyone that's getting really excited and thinking about things, oh, maybe I like the weekend, might go to that. It might only be for the diehard weekend fans because the tickets are £150.
0: Wow. Or
8: one for a standing ticket.
0: Yeah. How many dates is he doing, do you know? Because, of course, he would only perform on Saturdays and Sundays. Ah, we're non-stop, right? What about the Golden Globes, Claudia?
8: The Golden Globes caused a lot of controversy this week because they were... They were controversial but sort of everyone universally agreed that there was really really bizarre nominations so some of the ones one of the shows that got a lot of recognition that a lot of people hated was Ryan Murphy's show Prom on Netflix so it was starring Meryl Streep and James Corden and it was it was supposed to be like a musical show but really really bad no one no one liked it and but the strangest nomination that came from it had to be uh james corden got nominated for best best actor in a musical for the prom when anyone that watched that show all the reviews were saying that his uh, his character was a complete gay stereotype it was like something out of the 80s
0: it's part of the problem with that claudia not that i mean golden globes is for television it's not for theater so if you say best actor in a musical i mean how many tele- how many movie musicals are there every year particularly this last year i mean is, is it probably just not the case that they had to nominate some the, the the male actor in some musical and he was one of the only ones available
8: well, that is that uh, the that category is actually musical and comedy. So oh, it's okay. a Korean category. The other people, uh, the other person, at least we know he's not going to win because there are other good people in it. So Sasha Baron Cohen was also nominated for the Borat sequel, and Lin Manuel Miranda was nominated for Hamilton. Even though that came out in 2016, but assumably that can be in the Golden Globes this year because the recording was put on Disney Plus.
0: Right, okay. I read with interest somewhere recently as well, Claudia, that they're going to make it Wicked into a movie. Did you hear that?
8: I did hear that. And shockingly, shockingly, because it doesn't fit with any of the other stereotypes of the stereotypical person that I am, love musicals, so would absolutely love to see a movie version Um, of Wicked. And Emily Emily in
0: Paris, Claudia, did that cause a bit of a fuss at the Golden Globes?
8: That was another show, like The Prom, that was universally hated by critics but somehow managed to pick up two Golden Globe nominations when it was just, it is just really objectively quite a bad show. Really, really cringe-inducing, but uh, apparently the Golden Globes don't agree. Emily and Paris is doing really well.
0: Apparently so. Uh, Claudia, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for giving us a Trendy Scoop update. You can listen to the Trendy Scoop on Tuesdays. It's released on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you find your usual podcasts. Thank you, Claudia Savage, uh, for being with us, giving us all of your recommendations. This is The Scoop on Sunday. OK, well, the SU elections at QUB are coming up in the next month. We've already had a brief chat with Grain Nagavin, the president of the SU, uh, uh, with us earlier on in the show about this. But I'm joined now by Rose Winter from the the, the Scoop News site, who's got a piece out today, an SU election explainer. Rose, thanks very much for being with us. Hi. Um, Why don't we start at the very beginning? Uh, Nice, broad, easy questions, because I know that sometimes students are really into SU politics and they follow it all, and others just don't get it and don't understand what it's all about. So let's start from the very beginning. What are the SU elections? What are we voting for? What's going on here, Rose? Beginner's guide, idiot's guide.
1: Yeah, so very simply, the student leader elections are just a chance for students to elect the representatives of their voice going forward into the next academic year so it's a chance for students to choose who is going to be running the student union next year and who's going to be taking that active role in shaping the university's support networks for the students so it's students getting to choose who is speaking for them next year basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well what's the timeline here? Rose, I mean, what are the next number of weeks and months going to look like? And if people are going on social media, why maybe are their timelines going to be plagued with advertisements and appeals to vote from some other fellow students?
1: Yeah, so the nominations for the elections were closed um, on Friday, so on the 5th of Feb, and the voting will start on the 1st of March and close on the 4th of March. So between now and March, there's going to be... um, because of COVID everything's a bit different so students who have nominated themselves are going to have to be campaigning online so that's why between now and March you know the timelines are going to be full of the campaigns and there is not going to be in-person campaigning or leaflet handing out and things like that so that's what it's going to look like this year.
0: Okay. Um, and what are people actually voting for? Because there's a couple of different things floating around in terms of, you know, what, what are the positions that people are actually voting for? And what are the different responsibilities of those positions? I mean, what, what's actually at stake here, Ruth?
1: Yeah, so to break it down, there's full-time and part-time positions. So the full-time positions, the main one is the union president, who is the person who's just going to be coordinating all the activities of the student union next year. Um, And then the other full-time roles are officer for campaigns and engagement, um, the student officer for education, student officer for equality and diversity, the student officer for postgraduate and a student officer for welfare. So there are six full-time positions going up. Um, Then there's also some part-time, sorry, yeah, there's part-time student officers as well. So these people will be influencing the decisions and leading the changes within the students' union. Um, Then there's going to be So these people are representing specific groups within the student body and those groups are Black, Asian and minority ethnic students, disabled students, there's an environmental students officer, international students officer, Irish language students officer, LGBT plus students officer, mature and part-time students officer, student of parents and carers student officer, trans student officer and women's student officer. And I appreciate this all just sounds like a bit of a list, but there's also, some faculty representatives, so there's one for each faculty there. And there's 16 school representatives with one from each school. So those are all the positions that are going up.
0: The big ones, I suppose, Rose, that everybody will be focusing on are those full-time positions, aren't they? Yes. And I think sometimes, I know I talk to students, and we've talked about this on show this show already, I have talked to students who don't really know that there are full-time SU officers who are, I mean, they're given a salary and everything, Rose.
10: Yeah that's
1: right so they're paid positions they're full-time so the students who take them up will have to be either taking a sabbatical year or taking a year out of their studies so they really are full-time jobs Um, and what they actually do is they are running the student union you know whenever students have an issue often they will reach out to their it's kind of like a ladder they kind of they'll reach out to their school representative or their faculty representative or if it's an issue big enough they'll actually reach out to those so for example um, most students, you know, will probably have reached out to their education student officer. So those, of, you know, mm-hmm. those are just full-time roles that are there to represent students.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair, actually, to say, isn't it, Rose, that, I mean, people should expect, um, uh, they, I mean, they just take elections like this seriously, because they are paying um, uh, 18,000 uh, 18, pounds, sorry, for each of those different paid full-time student officers that's what over a hundred thousand pounds in terms of representation that students are paying for in their students union therefore it's important that they take the election seriously and i would say anyway at least try to engage and try to vote how did they do that if they want to vote rose i mean do we know yet how the actual voting process is going to work how's the whole thing going to be different because of covid
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they are something to be taken quite seriously. And um, usually voting is anyway used by an online portal. So uh, it's not being confirmed yet, but I imagine it will be the same this year where it will be voting through an online portal with like a login. Um, And usually there is like incentives to vote. So, you know, voucher draws and prize, you know, being entered into prize draws. So there's going to be incentives to vote and it's probably going to be online as
0: usual. Okay, fantastic. Rose, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. A wee update and explainer on the SU elections. The campaigns, I think, will probably be launching on Monday. That's when the nominations for all of the different positions are announced. And uh, like you say, the election itself will be online from the 1st of March uh, all the way through that week. To the 5th of March, Rose Winter from The Scoop News site. Thanks very much for being with us. This is The Scoop on Sunday.
1: Do you want to write for The Scoop News site? Get in touch. Email the scoop at queensradio.org or find us on social
6: media.
0: Now on Friday, The Scoop exclusively revealed that Queen's University splashed out over £50,000 on the Vice-Chancellor's lodge last year. The University employs a gardener, covers cleaning costs and even paid the TV licence for the 35-room Grace and Favour pad at Vale, which is just off the Malone Road. And this is a property where the Vice-Chancellor lives rent-free uh, on top of his £300,000 remuneration package. That's a figure that's around 10 times higher than the average Northern Irish salary, but it's not out of line with other vice chancellor salaries across the UK. Queen's say the property was given to the university in 1933 with the intention that it should be used as the residence of the vice chancellor. And they say that the lodge can be used for other university activities as well. According to the think tank, the Taxpayers Alliance, these figures would place Queen's University in fourth place amongst UK universities in terms of total spending on Vice-Chancellor residences. I'm joined now by Tom, a second year student who is living in Elms BT9, not too far away from Lennoxville at the time of these expenses. Tom, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Thomas. Listen, you're a former uh, Elms residence.
9: Uh,
0: how do these expenses make you feel? You see the numbers down on paper and compare them to your own experiences in Queen's
11: accommodation. You don't have to be a socialist to be furious by these numbers. Um, Elms, I was in Elms BT9, Elms Village, and, it, you know, it's a nice accommodation, but it's not without its faults. There was a large portion of accommodation where there'd be 12 students sharing two bathrooms. Six people to a bathroom is a pretty obscene ratio. You wouldn't want to share a bathroom with five other strangers as soon as you move into university. Meanwhile, especially, especially if one, one of them was there. you, Tom. Um, how you, could Tom. this money have been used better elsewhere, do you think? Well, I mean, there's a loads of issues that the university have failed to address. I mean, mental health. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you like me have a lot of friends who you know, mental health issues have struggled. They've acquired support from the SU, and they're only able to provide four to six sessions. That is not going to scratch the surface. If you say um, a council that costs £15 an hour, it could be less than that even, £15 an hour, just his gardening expense alone would create 2,000 hours of extra support for mental health issues, especially during the pandemic. That could be a wisely spent amount. Um in addition to that, I mean, there's so many support activities in the community that Queens could get really involved in, but they'd rather spend it on trimming the Vice Chancellor's
0: lawn. Okay, m- mind you, Tom. I mean, it's not about it's not the Vice Chancellor's gardening. This is a, a property that Queens has owned uh, since 1933. They can hardly let it go to rack and ruin. I mean, they have to look after the property. They
11: have to maintain it. They the don't property. have. To- they don't have to let it go to rack and ruin. They could use it for another purpose. They you could use it for for um, accommodating professors or uh, having a out of hours there. They could sell it and use it to invest in I don't know in the physics department's latest technology. They could. They don't need to let it go to rack and ruin. They could sell it. I mean, Ulster University, um, their vice chancellor, starting in uh, August 2019, they 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 didn't have um, a salary. they they didn't have a property included in their remuneration package. Why does Queens have to? Why does Queens have to spend for uh, be fourth in the uh, in the UK of universities on their vice chancellor's expenses? I mean, mm-hmm. Queens isn't the fourth in terms of output of research. Isn't terms of fourth in terms of. Um, student satisfaction. Why does it feel like it has to be fourth when it comes to the vice chancellor's expenses?
0: Mm-hmm. At Incom- University of Ulster in particular, you can look back at another Scoop article earlier this year on the former vice chancellor's use of the residence at Nocturna House in Coleraine. Uh, but you are right in saying that the new vice chancellor uh, doesn't live in, he doesn't live in the in the residence rent-free, but that's no guarantee, of course, he doesn't live there and pay rent. Uh, uh, that aside, Tom, I mean, isn't this the kind of attitude uh, Tom, that would see every grand old house that's in a big university's portfolio in the UK sold off, privatised and we're left with universities in big concrete blocks that were built in the 70s that nobody wants to live in. Isn't there something to be said for maintaining these properties and allowing some sort of grandeur? Point one, Tom. Point two. Uh, Queen's University is a Russell Group university, it is a prestigious university, it's one of the oldest universities certainly in the UK, uh, definitely on the island of Ireland. Why shouldn't the Vice-Chancellor, who's an extremely senior figure, uh, live in a property commensurate with his seniority?
11: I disagree with the premise that he's senior. Um, his remuneration package should reflect his merit to the university I cannot name the vice-chancellor and I'm a student at this university. I'd be surprised if 1% of the students at Queen's could name the vice-chancellor by name or pick him out in a lineup. If, he, if, we, if, if the students don't even know who he is, how much benefit is he bringing to the university? And if he's not bringing that much benefit, why the hell should he get such an expensive... Um, salary why the hell should he get such a large remuneration package and to your point beforehand why does does the lodge have to go to the vice-chancellor why can't it be used for teaching purposes why can't it be used
0: for other purposes it doesn't Okay. Okay. Uh, well, first off, just because you don't know who he is doesn't mean you don't doesn't mean that he's not doing good work or is that his work isn't valuable. I'm quite sure you couldn't name the head of the civil service and all the different departments in England, and I'm very sure that their work is incredibly valuable in the UK or indeed in Northern Ireland. Just because you can't name a position and the person who occupies it doesn't mean that that position isn't valuable. And two, I, I, I am interested in your second point. I mean, it strikes me that, for example, Riddle Hall which is now I think, I think Queen's management uh, was a, an old grand building of some sort that I believe was a residence for a marquee of some kind in the past. Um, uh, but, I mean, Tom, just because you can't name the person in a position doesn't mean they're not doing good work. Uh, I mean, surely that's just your ignorance rather than his failure to communicate his achievements.
11: Well, you mentioned the civil service. I doubt any civil service member at a senior level would be, would be on three hundred thousand pounds and have a grand old lodge with expenses included. I'm not saying he doesn't provide merit. I'm saying the merit doesn't reflect this large scale of his remuneration package. they don't they don't match. They're imbalanced, and the university should address that. Okay, uh, what about Tom? The fact
0: that uh, universities like this uh, should have places where they can entertain guests, high level meetings, uh, royalty, perhaps visiting, perhaps investors from around the world. It makes sense, does it not, to have a place uh, where they can be welcomed on a personal level and and the university and therefore the students derive enormous benefit from that kind of facility.
11: Well, like you say, we've got a massive portfolio at Queen's. I don't understand why that specific lodge has to be rented out free of charge to the vice chancellor it could easily just be created you know boarded up and then un, un uh, unboarded anytime we needed a new guest we don't have to put the vice chancellor there or we could say you're going to have to pay for the expenses you're getting paid 300,000 pound a year you can sort your own gardening out it, okay it,
0: okay uh, what what about Tom I mean as much as we say that Queen's University is an attractive place I'm sure to be a vice chancellor it does, however, from if, if we're attracting competition from England, from Wales, from Scotland, from across the world Uh, Belfast isn't always the most attractive place to move. Uh, Ian Greer for example I believe moved from uh, the University of Manchester he will or may not have moved his entire family with him surely there should be incentives to get the kind of candidates we want to come to Northern Ireland there should be incentives to make sure that we get the best possible person uh, for the job of Vice Chancellor an undoubtedly very important job for the University and this incentive works because it means that people are interested at coming to interested in coming to Queen's and occupying a very senior position. It's one of a number of incentives included to attract the best um, uh,
11: competition on the market. I think the merit between different candidates is so marginal that it doesn't warrant having to attract the very best. Honestly, Queen's could do very well with someone who isn't necessarily the best, but they're not that much worse than possibly Ian Greer. And they certainly don't deserve such an expensive remuneration package. I don't think it is a worthy argument to say we're going to attract the best to lead the university at a vice chancellor level. I don't know if you can say lead because no one knows who he is, but at the same time, possibly underfund different departments and different services to the students. That should be the thing that the vice chancellor should be championing. But at the same time, he's taking our money. Let's not forget we're consumers, the students. He's taking our money to trim his lawn. And I just don't understand the argument that says the vice chancellor is an important figure. He deserves this package. When at the same time, students should be getting what they pay for and that's not the case. Why is it okay for him to get what he deserves, apparently, but not students? I don't understand that. Okay, Tom, we're going to have
0: to leave it there. Thank you very much for being with us. How are you enjoying learning from home, Tom? It's torturous. It's torturous. Always putting a positive spin on it, as always, Tom. Thank you so much for being with us. The university, I'm sure, would respond to the things that you've said by saying that they have taken action to address the challenges students are facing. Things like pausing the accommodation contract, uh, university hardship fund dramatically increased as well. But we'll have to continue this conversation another day. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being with us. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's try something completely different. We're joined now by Rebecca Dobbin-Donaghy from The Good News Scoop, here to cheer us up on a uh, lonely Sunday evening as we're all stuck at home with some good news. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? Hello,
10: Thomas. I'm great. Good. I'm Listen,
0: how are you going to cheer us up? How are you going to put a smile on your face? What is your first good news story for us?
10: Okay, so my first good news story. Um, So on Sunday night, so it will be tonight for anyone that's listening live, Um, most people will know that the Super Bowl is on. So the Kansas City Chiefs are taking on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Super Bowl 55. And anyone that's watching, they might see someone who's a bit of a change of scenery on the officiating team. Um, as Sarah Thomas is said to become the first woman ever to referee a Super Bowl game, which is a bit mental, to be honest, because like we're on 55 the 55th Super Bowl and there's seven referees each time. You'd think they would have squeezed one in by now, but like here we are. We'll take it as a win. <laughs> um so yeah, I'm really excited to see that. There's definitely been like uh a positive change, in, especially in American sport recently. You might remember um, one of my stories before Christmas was about Sarah Fuller becoming the first female pl- player ever to play in a Par 5 college football game. And then a couple of weeks ago as well, um, Orlando Magic took on the Charlotte Hornets in the NBA. And it was the first time there was ever a female duo refereeing um, an NBA game.
0: It's strange, isn't it, Rebecca? Because I mean, for Americans, American football is a a real cultural totemic touchstone thing. It seems so strange, and it's adored by men and women alike, obviously. It seems so strange that it would take such a long period of time for a woman to be on the officiating team.
10: Yeah, it's it's mad, but um, I suppose it is sort of seen as an old boys club still, um, as much as we're changing, uh, slowly but surely, but um you have to sort of take the positives where you can get them um all right
0: well you can tune in to watch that I'm sure that'll probably be at like midnight or something for yeah, us Yeah, it's I on imagine. the
10: middle of the night but mm. I'll be getting up to watch it so <laughs> I'm sure Rebecca, the
0: Rebecca will be watching it so you can join her if you want <laughs> tonight if you're listening to this live sometime throughout the night I'm sure brilliant first story Rebecca uh, give us another one
10: yes yeah, so my um Second one basically just still on the Super Bowl Um, tonight. You might you might notice that there's there is people there. Um, There's been reduced capacity for all sports I suppose for the last year, Um, but they've given the seven thousand I think tickets that for people that are able to go are all going to healthcare workers um, that are from Florida and from um, Tampa or Kansas. Sorry. so, that's all vaccinated healthcare workers are getting those tickets. So, I just thought that was cute. I just thought that was a really nice thing to do. Um,
0: no, you're absolutely right. And so, I mean, I wonder how big the stadium is before uh, they've reduced it down to that number. probably is. I'm asking you like, difficult questions. You might not be I'm the not
10: to 100% sure off the top of my head, but it's probably <laughs> 30,000, 40,000. Like, right, um, yeah. It's massive, massive stadium. And um, that'll probably be about standard size. But, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And Rebecca, what about the Good News Scoop? You had your first show last week. People can tune in on a Monday, follow all of our socials to get the link to the podcast. What can they look forward to this week on the Good News Scoop?
10: Um, Yeah, so this week I interviewed Annette Kelly from Little Penny Thoughts, who I'm sure people will have seen all over their Facebook and Instagram. She's over half a million followers across her platforms like she's just she's a massive um influencer and she's done so many great things um over the years um and hosts a lot of events and things like that so yeah she she's an amazing lady um eventually got her pinned down so we've been able to get her interviewed this um for my show this week so yeah it's really one i really enjoyed doing it so hopefully everyone will enjoy listening to it as well
0: fantastic rebecca thank you so much how are you enjoying university from home
10: um, Not very much. It's not very <laughs> exciting, but um, I suppose I, I just live in this room now. Um, I've nowhere else to be. So I'm like either between prepping the show or doing university work. Um, well, if
0: you're similarly sad and stuck at home, you can listen to The Good News Scoop every Monday and hear Rebecca's uh, sonorous voice. Uh, talking us through some of the smiles, the stories to put a smile on our face. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Right, let's stay on the theme of good news then. And the UK and Northern Ireland vaccine rollouts are increasing in pace. In Northern Ireland, a quarter of a million people have so far got their first jab. That's around 14% of the entire population. UK-wide, that figures over 10 million, 17% of the population. The UK is doing well globally, with only Israel and the United Arab Emirates ahead. And it looks likely that the UK will hit the target of vaccinating all over 50s and vulnerable groups by the spring. But what about the rest of the world? Uh, We're going to chat to some students on the ground in the Republic of Ireland and in the USA to understand how the EU and American vaccination programmes are going. We were actually meant to check in with our man in New Zealand, Cam Leakey, uh, this week. However, New Zealand's close to COVID-free and he's off on a camping holiday with some friends. So he's really trying to rub it in. Uh, Nonetheless... Uh, we're going to start off down south and speak to Drummond McGinn, student at UCD and founder and chief editor of Frontier Current Affairs. Drummond, thanks very much for being with us.
9: Thanks for inviting me onto the last show.
0: Not a problem at all. Why don't we start with a bit of an update on the pandemic so far, Drummond, in Ireland. There was a spike there after Christmas, but things are looking up now.
9: Yeah, well, as you said there, there was a spike after Christmas and then pretty much immediately even on, um, I think it was a christmas eve we we're put into a level five lockdown and then even on Stevens day they introduced further restrictions so we're more in a um in a, in a lockdown similar to the one that we had back in april and march last year uh to uh just yesterday 35 deaths were recorded and 1047 new cases which is significantly down but it's starting to uh level out as um a little bit as well but tony hooligan is a positive about it, saying that there's great work going on, and it's hopefully we'll be uh, aiming to come out of this in around uh, the 5th of March. Okay, uh, what, what,
0: tell us about the restrictions currently in place. Where, where are you at the moment, Drummond, and, and where can you go if you
9: wanted to? Well, I'm based in Dunleary, which is just a small suburb um, south of uh, Dublin, and we have a five kilometre radius, so that means I can just about get to university. Um, though I haven't been up there uh, since they have the library open and everything which would be handy enough um, in terms of things that are open it's very little you've got the supermarket you've got a couple of coffee shops um, but it's a lot back pretty much back to what it was in uh, March and April um, yeah so you know, travel five kilometers <laughs> with can exercise there's really not much more to it Exactly. Something
0: similar, I suppose, to what's happening um, north of the border then. Let's talk about the vaccine, Drummond. Uh, Give us an idea of how how the vaccine deployment is going so far in Ireland. And then in just a second, we'll talk about the kind of the politics behind it. But in real terms, uh, what's going on in terms of the vaccine deployment?
9: Well, I think it's important to note that the vaccine uh, rollout sort of stems from Europe as well. So unlike the UK, we get all of our vaccines ordered by Europe and then they deliver them to Ireland. And in terms of vaccinations, there have been 219,000 vaccinations have already happened in Ireland. And we have three um, vaccines similar to the UK as well. So we've got the Moderna, the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is being rolled out here. The AstraZeneca vaccine, unlike the UK, is only administered to under 70s, though. Um, So hopefully the vaccine rollout will pick up in the next couple of weeks. But Ireland, compared to the UK, is significantly slower. But in terms of Europe-wide measures, Ireland is doing very well in terms of uh, vaccine Hmm. rollout.
0: We're hearing a lot, Drummond, about problems with the EU vaccine program and I'm mean, being as impartial as I possibly can can you break down what these problems are with the EU vaccine program and how they are how they are having effect on you know getting the jab into people's arms
9: across Europe well I think the one thing that a lot of people have been sort of commenting on recently is the so the way that the um, the medical agency who regulates the vaccines in Europe has dealt with the uh, the, the vaccine rollout they've been arguably quite slow about it but also quite cautious as well which is you know has its pros and cons um in t- especially in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine they, they had a lot more um regulation on it and it's only just been approved there during the week um yeah in terms of the politics behind it they we've seen that the there is the contract breach um still sort of unclear what happened there but um Ursula von der Leyen head of the uh, European Commission saying that AstraZeneca have you know gone against the contract that they deliver um, the vaccines to Europe and AstraZeneca are saying no you know there's a whole it's a it's a supply issue there's nothing we can do about it the UK signed up first so uh, we have to deliver to them first and that caused a whole spiral of events which led to Ursula von der Leyen threatening to introduce um, article 16 which is the northern irish protocol um, which would essentially stop um, the vaccines being, able, being delivered to Northern Ireland to stop the um, sort of a, a back road into the UK for the, <laughs> um, the European vaccines that are made there.
0: And Drummond, how is that move being viewed in Ireland? I saw a clip of um, Micheal Martin, T-shirt Micheal Martin, talking about uh, how he hadn't been informed by the European Commission that they were going to trigger Article 16. Uh, how is that move perceived domestically in Ireland? Uh, looking over uh, at the decision makers in Brussels,
9: I, I think that it took us all by surprise. Really, um, no one was, as you mentioned, there was informed. Michel Martin wasn't informed, um, which sort of, you know, undermined the importance of Article Sixteen. This is something that was really a contentious issue in Brexit negotiations, and to simply threaten that uh, Ursula von der Leyen to threaten that has, you know, now. Spired into the DUP and the Conservatives saying that they want Article 16 removed from the, uh, the Brexit deal, which would be disastrous for a trade between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I think it's sort of perceived here that it was sort of Europe shooting themselves in the foot and has disastrous consequences for both Northern Ireland and um, the Republic.
0: Mm -hmm. In terms of perceptions then, we'll stay on that, Drummond. Uh, the People in Ireland looking at UK, as we said, as things stand, Northern Ireland and the UK as a whole are considerably further ahead in terms of vaccine deployment. Uh, What are people in Ireland saying when their closest neighbour in the UK is at this stage... And, you know, we'll caveat the whole thing with being there's lots of incidents over the course of this pandemic when the UK government has come under sustained and justified criticism for its actions. But on this case, it appears that they're doing quite well. Are the people in the Republic looking at their next neighbour across and asking how are they doing so well and we're not?
9: I think this is something that has been brought up a number of times. Um, As I uh, mentioned previously, if you look to any other European country, we're doing significantly better than they are. Um, in terms of comparing ourselves to the UK, the UK, um, you know, sort of regulated and you know approved these vaccines much early on than the, uh, the EU, um, and the number of vaccines that they're pumping out is significantly higher than Ireland as well. However, we do have similar dates to when we'll be um, fully vaccinated, similar to the UK. I think it was uh, Matt Hancock was speaking uh, there during the week that. Um, you know, you guys will be fully vaccinated by autumn. And that's a similar timeframe to here. You had Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, um, saying that, you know, everyone in Ireland should be vaccinated by September. So in terms of fully vaccinating Ireland and fully vaccinating the UK, it seems to be a very similar um, end date.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, I suppose you're right in saying that, you know, it's a long race and we're still at the very beginning of it. Uh, Drummond, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for chatting to us. We're going to have to have you back on the show to talk Again, uh, thank you for giving us an update on the vaccine deployments in Ireland and across the EU. Uh, Drummond McGinn there, student at UCD, founder and chief editor of Frontier Current Affairs. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's continue our examination of how the vaccine deployments are going around the globe. And let's jump across the pond to the United States. We're joined by Kevin Lynch from George Washington University, producer of On the Ballot on GW Radio. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for being with us once again. Of course, thanks for having me. It's been a mad few months in the United States. Let's talk about the pandemic. How are things going? What are the numbers currently like? What are the restrictions currently in place? Give us a bit of an update, please, Kevin.
3: Um, So as of right now, the numbers are are pretty bad um, in terms of the case numbers and the deaths per day. But I mean, I think this was pretty much kind of expected along the trajectory. I think once the winter came, I think people expected that there'd be a lot more cases and a lot more deaths. And and at this point, kind of the way that the U.S. manages the pandemic and just the way our system is kind of set up, at least how it was set up for us um, from the former administration, each state is kind of doing their own thing. Um, so it's kind of been hard to coordinate all of that. And I think that the pandemic itself in the U.S. has been getting steadily worse over the winter, but I think there is a lot of optimism because the vaccines are starting to come and a lot of the elderly population is getting vaccinated. So Mm -hmm. it's at a pretty bad place, but it looks like it's getting better.
0: It's just come to me, Kevin, because you mentioned there the states are all doing things differently. You know, if you go back in American history, there are big moments, the the two world wars, civil war, where there's kind of a recalibration or rethink of the relationship between the states and the federal government. Is this one of those moments? Are people saying to themselves, there should really be a you know federal authority over you know everybody having the same rules, everybody having the same restrictions. Or are people fairly content with the approach where each state can calibrate and 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 be flexible according to specific requirements?
3: So I think that that generally, I feel like that's what people would think, but I, I think just with a lot of like political tension that's going on right now, I think people are um, it's kind of become a battle of like like pro-federal government versus against the federal government. I think President Trump, former President Trump really went into this kind of letting all the states do their own thing. And now the Biden administration wants to have a stronger federal response. And I think that's kind of like a battle that people are having. A lot of people don't want the federal government. Um, But I know President Biden is already doing a lot of things to kind of increase the power of the federal government, which includes like invoking the Defense Production Act, which means that um, a lot more of like um, the federal government can kind of go in and kind of force um, people to produce more of the vaccine, have more people on the ground, give states more support. Um, I think the general consensus is a lot of people, especially more left-leaning people, want more federal government to be part of this response. But um, sort of with the political nature of things, it's it's kind of become a battle.
0: And let's talk about then the vaccine itself, Kevin. What's the kind of rollout been like? Has it been good so far? What type of people, groups of people have got the vaccine? And what's the timeline for the next number of months?
3: So President Biden set a timeline. I think he said 100 million vaccines um, in a hun- his first 100 days. And that appears to be a pretty realistic goal. Um, and I think he's looking to get, I think, 300 million people, which is nearly the entire population, vaccinated or at least available to be vaccinated by the summer. Um, in terms of how the vaccinations are going, I think there were some hiccups in the beginning. Uh, again, each state is operating independently to run their own vaccine rollout. Um, and I know at least there's been some trouble because, for example, in the state of Florida, a lot of people who um, weren't qualified were getting their vaccines. They were jumping ahead in line and some people weren't able to get it. So then New York decided to fine people who, who didn't follow the precautions. But then because of that, they were running out of uh, vaccines weren't being used because people were afraid to get fined. So rather than giving them to other people, they would be throwing them out. So there was just some hiccups in that in that
0: let me ask you this kevin i suppose when people when we talk about health in this country anyway and whenever health in america comes up it's always the same thing which is that america doesn't have in in the same way that we would recognize a, a universal health care service now there is sort of public health care for the people who need it etc cetera, etc cetera. but why uh, is america getting the vaccine out? I mean, does it go to private hospitals? Can you pay in America in order to get the vaccine privately? How, how does the rollout actually work in practice?
3: So I believe that it's, it's. I think it's, as of now, it's free or at least covered by insurance. I'm not exactly sure with people who are uninsured, um, but it, I know a lot of it's just becoming available at like local um, local like locations, local hospitals, and I know that they're really trying to I guess reach out to people and encourage them to come but I'm not exactly sure how it's working for people who aren't covered I'm pretty sure at least with this they're, they're trying their best to make it available for everyone because regardless of insurance if people aren't vaccinated then that, that ruins it for mm-hmm. everyone.
0: And then uh, does it work via age categories in the same way Kevin are they asking for the over 80s to come first and then not giving it to younger people how does that
3: work? Yeah. So they're doing it based on age. So as of right now, I'm not exactly sure what the bracket is because again, it, it depends by state, but I know I'm, my home state is New York. So in New York, they had, they first offered it to um, elderly population. I know my grandma got vaccinated. She got both doses, so she's good. And then now I believe, as of, I think yesterday, they lowered the age. So I think people around, like, I would say like our parents age, like 50s, um, maybe early sixties. They're now qualified um, in the state of New York, and it's, I think it's similar um, around the country. It's it's by age bracket, and then they're slowly opening it up to more people.
0: I want to po- talk about the politics in just a second, Kevin. But I wonder: uh, Has this pandemic prompted a conversation in America at all about healthcare in a way that is fundamentally different from previous conversations about
3: healthcare? I I would like to say it did, but I I don't think it necessarily did. Um, I think one of the things that maybe I would say is that it, it sort of reminded us that um, we need to make sure that people have access to healthcare. Um, but I think it, it's really like gone in different ways. I think you have it. It kind of made everyone think we all need healthcare and we shouldn't have anyone be denied. But for example, a lot of people on the right are now saying the reason there's healthcare problems is because the government's involved. We need a totally free market approach. We need no government. And then now you have people on the left who are saying we need single payer Medicare for all. Um, so so it, it definitely has spawned a conversation, but it, I don't think it's really but no with- consensus in a particular yeah, direction. Yeah, total total different.
0: Uh, let me ask about the politics kevin joe biden obviously has spent a lot of his time in the campaign and then in the early days of his presidency talking about covid he's made if not nailed down the details he's made a lot of big promises to do with unifying getting on top of this pandemic getting on top of the vaccine program as he sees it has he put himself on a hook that it's now going to be very difficult for him to get off has he set a very high bar for himself and if he doesn't reach it there will be uh, harsh criticism from the American public.
3: So I don't think he's necessarily set a really high bar. I mean, just based on kind of like what I was saying before, there isn't necessarily like that much he can do because there's, there's a lot of limitations. There's like a lot of power sharing between governors and, and the federal government. And there's not necessarily too much he can specifically do, but I think he is doing the most he can do um, incur um, by supporting States by encouraging as much as he can the vaccine rollout, passing stimulus checks. And and I think that regardless of if anyone did anything, based on kind of the trajectory of how it's going, the pandemic is going to be easing by the end of this year and into next year. So I think regardless of what President Biden did, I think once things start to get back to normal, it's it's he's going to get credit because I think that's simply how, how it works. Regardless of what a president does, if things are going well, they get credit. If they're not, they don't.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, Kevin, thanks very much for being with us. You've given us an update there on the vaccine rollout in the United States. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and we'll have to have you back on again uh, very soon. Thank you so much. Kevin Lynch there from George Washington University. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay let's chat now to Curtis Bell. Curtis is a tech writer for the Scoop News site and a final year aerospace engineering student. Curtis you've written a piece this week about test and trace. We don't hear as much I suppose about the test and trace apps now that we're onto the vaccine but they're still a very important part of the fight against COVID. Let's start at the very beginning shall we? Why did you
4: write an article? Why was this in your head? Yes yeah, so I've followed along with the development of these apps and the systems behind them pretty much since they were announced um, in April of last year. And definitely at the time that they were coming out, they were seen as this um, silver bullet, almost like you know the way to use technology um, to potentially alter the course of the pandemic. And it's been fascinating to watch sort of the dreams of uh, the tech developers and the reality and how people have responded to that. And as well as at the university, I don't know if you've read any emails from the university over the past while, have been promoting the Stop COVID NI, the local app, um, as one of the ways to try and manage um, the spread of the pandemic on campus. So... Mm-hmm. I think it's something that we've been encouraged to take part in, but I wanted to do a bit of a deeper dive into right, what's actually going on behind the scenes. And what were the main things that you found, Kurdish? You were kind of writing about how they actually work. I mean, break down the main things in your article for us. Yeah, so um, essentially back in April of last year, Apple and Google announced they were partnering to develop uh, what eventually uh, became called the Exposure Notification API, which is essentially... Um, uh, system level function in the phones themselves where health departments could uh, integrate with that. And as you go about your daily life, your phone is sending out signals over Bluetooth. And if it comes into contact with another phone, if it's within two meters of it for 15 minutes or more, it will exchange random keys um, between the two devices. And if One of the users of those devices later ends up testing positive for COVID-19. They get a code from their health department, which they can enter into the app. That will then upload the codes that is collected over the 48 hours before you test positive to a server. And then all the other devices of other users are constantly checking that Mm. server several times throughout the day. And if they see a key that they recognize that they've been in contact with, they can display an alert. To the user and tell them to self-isolate. What do we mean by
0: contact, Curtis? I mean, uh, f- for these apps, let's talk about the Northern Ireland one. I mean, how how mm-hmm. close do you need to be to somebody, and for how long for you know you to get a ping to say you've been in contact with somebody? What does contact mean?
4: Yeah, so the definition in terms of contact tracing in general, the whole structure designed to try and prevent spread is if you are within two meters of someone for 15 minutes or more that is considered a close contact with someone that's what it would be if it was a manual contact tracer getting in contact with you and asking those would be the people who were um fit those criteria the problem with mobile phones is that we are using bluetooth as a method for trying to determine distance which it was never designed for and would be like trying to do your daily commute on a use cycle you could do it but it's going to be Challenging to say the least. Um, so, for example, there's one of the studies I looked at and there's done by Trinity College Dublin where they had tried to use the signal strength, basically, that the Bluetooth reports in a tram carriage. And what they were finding was that the Bluetooth signal would ping and reflect off the walls of the carriage itself. So someone at the very end of the train would appear to the app as if they were right next to you. That's probably the biggest obstacle to this technology is the actual distance measuring, like trying to determine how close the other devices are.
0: And, and what about uptake, Curtis? I suppose this is a, a difficult question. I mean, is there a critical mass? Is there a number? Of, is there a number? A percentage of the population that need to be using the app for it to have any purpose
4: whatsoever? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, it's it's a pretty, it would be a pretty useless system if no one got on board with it, and certainly, you know, the local executive, Um, I've seen several ads for it encouraging people to download um, the app and start using it. The most recent one I saw was, was like August, September of last year in the Republic line, they were saying about a third of all adults had downloaded the app and were using it. And there's a study done by University of Oxford that say, were saying that even relatively low levels of um, uptake can have an effect um, in terms of reducing spread, um, but I think even if every person was using it, it's not—it's not, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, the big advantage over manual systems is that it's so much quicker and automated. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what what about privacy, Curtis?
0: And I don't want to stray into the realms of. Uh, fake news conspiracy theories online because there's been a lot of chat about this I mean what data these these apps gather about you and I suppose it's within the context and I want to talk about it in a second because it relates back to previously previous article that you have written it's within a much bigger context isn't it about privacy and technology but just on these apps first of all should people be concerned is there any cause for concern about uh, the, the data that you're handing over in a stop covid app?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, an excellent question um, because I think people should be concerned about their privacy. You know, hold on to that concern um, personally, and also just looking at you know the app. So information that you hand over, these apps are not really a concern. If you actually go through the setup process for Stop COVID and I, you'll notice that at no point do you uh, input your name and address, any identifying information like that. Any of the apps that use the Apple and Google. Go exposure notification API also are not permitted to track location information as part of it. All that they get are the Bluetooth keys. That's the only information that they. So, so they don't data. actually know where you
0: are. They don't know where you maybe picked it up. All they know is that there was a you know these
4: two keys came into contact. Exactly, yeah, entirely random. I mean, you are carrying a smartphone around with you that's constantly connected to a mobile phone network that if a government wanted to know where you were, could just go and ask the mobile phone network to provide that information. (laughs) So the actual apps themselves aren't. Let's move away from the COVID app and and jump into privacy in general
0: then Curtis, because as I say, this was the subject of a previous article that you wrote for the Scoop News blog. Um, You're a young person interested in technology, uh, how big an issue really is privacy and technology in the twenty first century, or are, are we all overthinking it, and actually, it's not really much cause of concern at all?
4: Uh, I think as one, this might have been one of the lines that got cut from the article, where I basically said, "Look, I'm probably more of a hypochondriac than most people. I am probably on the more <laughs> extreme end of concern about this." But that being said, I still think people should be more concerned about it than They are even just an awareness of the sheer amount of information that uh, the likes of Facebook, Twitter, Google, companies that have large advertising-based business models, the sheer amount of information that they they do collect on us and even information that we just willingly give over to them. I try to Um, quantify that for me. Sorry, Curtis,
0: if you can. I mean, how much information do you think... About my life that Twitter and
4: Facebook know right now. I mean, even Eve, okay. So first of all, the the posts and the pictures that you put up on Facebook and Twitter, for example, they're analysing them to match them. You know, if someone else posts a picture, that it recognises the face and thinks that looks like whoever's friend, you know, and it'll add the name tag into that. I'm sure you've got the notifications for that to say, Hey, someone else has posted a picture of you from a outing or something, you know, it's doing that processing on your face to try and pick out the features and see which of your friends it looks like. And even when you're not actually on Facebook and Twitter itself, Facebook I've quite famously had a little thing called um, like a Facebook pixel. They call it it's like web tracking that follows you around the web when you're shopping on websites like Amazon, for example, and it can then surface ads for you on Facebook later on because it knows um, aspects about your computer, uh, uh, certain characteristics, and it can then serve ads to you later on for, say, something you've been looking at on Amazon. So it's things like that. It's the more subtle Mm behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't um, really see. I suppose that the question, as we
0: finish up, Curtis, that a lot of people will put to themselves is, you know, clearly for somebody like yourself, the, that privacy and technology is a principle where you don't want big tech companies knowing details about you. And that's fair enough. For a lot of other people, they'll probably be a lot more pragmatic, Curtis, about the whole thing and say, do you know what? Actually, I don't really care if I get a couple of sponsored ads on my Facebook. They might even say, it's actually more helpful because if I'm looking for a pair of shoes and I start getting some targeted advertising for, for some shoes that could help me out. Do you think that takeaway principle, so I get it if you're, you, you're ideologically, for example, opposed to, to big tech knowing details about you. Is there really much of a threat from these companies knowing about your privacy in, 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 in a practical
4: sense? Yeah, I'd say there's probably two aspects to it. First, if, and that is a perfectly valid option if you're perfectly willing to have those ads be more personalized, and you know that is entirely your choice. I think it's the fact that the majority of this is so unaware to most people that they don't even know that this is something that is running in the background constantly. And um, secondly, the other question, the other, the point that worries me more is what's the the end point of this? You know, the amount of information that you know the likes of Facebook. Has on us, considering it's coming to only like 15 years old, has you know grown so 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 much over those 15 years, from just being you know like simple SAS posts to um, pictures that now, whenever you upload have uh, GPS location in the mat- metadata. and you know just the amount. Where do we say no? That's enough. Where we don't want any more, or are we just going to sort of sleepwalk into this point where? We just hand over more and more and more until it gets to the point where now we're like, okay, this is way past the point yeah. that I'm comfortable, and then it's too late then. I think I think you've hit upon a
0: really key point there, Curtis, which is it's about it's about transparency, isn't it? It's about people knowing yeah. what they're doing. Let's, in a bid to make sure that people aren't confused, go back to your final conclusion as to the test and trace apps. You, you concluded that um, you would download the test and trace apps and that they were no threat to privacy, right?
4: Yeah, I've had it downloaded since day one. I think particularly in this case of um, uh, the exposure notification apps, there's no real downside. There's no real privacy implications. And during the course of people using it, we're going to learn more about how they work and how effective they might be. So I think from that perspective, I'm more than happy to have it and use it and try it out. Fantastic. Curtis, listen, we're going
0: to have to leave, leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Curtis Bell there at uh, Tech Writer for The Scoop news site. You can find his piece up on our social media right now as well. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Now, it wouldn't be A Scoop on Sunday unless we were joined by Lauren McCann from The Sporty Scoop to give us an update on all things sporty happening this week. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us as always. Now, let's begin. It was another busy week, Dance Bank Premiership. How's the table looking after the games midweek and yesterday, Saturday?
12: So Linfield remain on course to retain their league crown after two statement victories this week. They swept aside Portadown at Windsor Park on Tuesday night, courtesy of a hat-trick from Shane Lavery, before they further extended their lead at the top after Jimmy Callagher scored a winner in the Dan minutes to secure a 2-1 victory for the Blues against Crusaders. Their nearest challengers, Lauren, had eased their routine 4-1 victory over Glen Avon at home, which was their first win of the new year during the week, before they conceded a late equaliser yesterday to draw 1-1 with lowly warm point, and that leaves their title hopes pretty much in tatters. Um, a Jordan Owens header in the sixth minute of the game was enough to hand Crusaders all three points against Glen Torn at Seaview midweek, but their defeat to Linfield all but ended their outside chance to clinching the Gibson Cup this year. Um, Mick McDermott's men bounced back well on Saturday with Jamie McDonough's stunning strike. If you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend check out the BBC's website for it. Enough to see victory um, over Cliftonville at the Oval. It kept a disappointing end of the week for Paddy McLaughlin's side after their new signing, Paul O'Neill, had rescued a point late in the game on his Cliftonville debut as the Reds played out an entertaining 2-2 draw with Cold Rain on Tuesday at the showgrounds. Orrin Kearney, who was this week named Manager of the Month for January after Cole Rain's recent upturn in Fort Orme, then saw his side draw their second successive game this week. Um, they conceded a late equaliser against Portadown yesterday. Carrick were relieved to just finally play a game this weekend after their game with Warren Pointer in the week was called off twice. It was postponed on Tuesday after heavy rain. And it was scheduled to take place the following day, but the weather again prevented it from going ahead. Um, their lack of games certainly didn't seem to be a problem on Saturday. They recorded a win over Dungannon, who themselves had caused an upset during the week with their shock 1-0 win over Ballymina. David Jeffries' men again fell to defeat yesterday. Um, Glen Avon beat them 2-1 at Mourneview Park and they move up to eighth in the table.
0: And let's talk about women's football then, uh, Lauren. Uh, tell us a bit more about the announcement from the IFA.
12: Um, so on Thursday, it was announced that Kenny Shields' squad will be taking on England on Tuesday the 23rd of February in a behind-closed-doors friendly and it's in preparation for their Euro playoff tie coming up in April. Um, the game's going to kick off at 12.30, it's in George's Park, but it'll actually be streamed live on the BBC website and it's the first time these two countries have met since 2008 when the Lionesses ran out 2-0 winners. Um, their manager, Kenny Shields, is organising a training cap. Camp ahead of the two leg playoff in April, and he wanted his side to side the face top opposite opposition to prepare them for such a crunch fixture. And he stated that the England represent the very top level um, after they finished third in the 2019 World Cup.
0: Okay, um, what about rugby? Ireland have named their team again ahead of the Six Nations opener against Wales, which is today actually, or will have been today. Um, who's made the,
4: the starting lineup?
12: So Tag Bernie and Josh van der Flaar will both start in the pack in the away game in Cardiff as Ireland look for their first away win of their coaches Andy Farrell's tenure in what will be his 10th game six, since succeeding Joe Schmidt after the 2019 World Cup. Bernie's going to partner James Ran in the second row and van der Flaar will come in at the back row. James Lowe's also been selected on the wing ahead of Jordan Armour and that'll be his third Ireland appearance. Ireland have also been boosted by the return of Fidegay and Joe, Tag Furlow and Ian Henderson who are named on the bench after injury. After a disappointing show in last year's tournament and the Autumn Nations Ireland are really hoping to hit the ground running in this year's tournament especially after England's shock loss to Scotland yesterday which has opened the door for them to claim top spot early. They've been labelled favourites ahead of the tie with Wales having been severely weakened but Farrell quickly dismissed the claim warning Ireland will have to be at their best to defeat the Welsh.
0: How are the how how are the stadiums? How are the audiences? How are the fans? Working for Six Nations, uh, Lauren. I didn't manage to watch the, the catch any of the game yesterday. Actually, I mean, is there any fan interaction at all, or is it is it silence um, in the stadiums?
12: Yeah, it's exclusively behind closed doors. Given that most of the games are being played in the UK at the moment, but I'm sure there's large TV audiences watching all round, <laughs> especially here in Ireland
0: you reckon their performance will be diminished, I suppose, as a player, if you haven't got your fans there in the, in the stands cheering you on?
12: Um, I suppose it could be, but I think the Autumn Nations, it was quite similar. There weren't many people um, in the stadiums. And of course, you know, if you have your nation's hopes resting on you and everybody will just be watching from home, I'm sure there's pressure in a different way to succeed.
0: <laughs> Plenty of pressure. Let's talk about golf now, a sport which is actually done not too badly through the pandemic. Roy McElroy hasn't made the best of starts ever at the Phoenix Open. Tell us more.
12: So the Northern Irishman is currently seven behind the leader, Xander shuffle at the halfway stage of the tournament after second round, four under par. He had a disastrous start on the opening day. Um, he went into Friday's action, sharing 50th spot, which reflected his per opening. But he recovered in the latest round with four birdies, getting him to four under par for the tournament by the turn. And he now goes into the weekend's action in 27th. It, the tournament actually concludes later this evening, so it'll be intriguing to see where he does end up and meanwhile, in the Saudi international field, his fellow countryman Graham McDowell's woes since golf resumed after lockdown have persisted. The 41-year-old fired a three-over par 73 with his round, and that leaves him in last place out of the 76 players.
0: Ouch. What about GAA? It uh, doesn't look to be stunning up anytime soon.
12: Yeah, so following a meeting between the GAA's COVID advisory group during the week, the association has opted to further delay the return of inter-county teams to training. There was a bit of hope last week that they could come back near the end of February, and whilst casings are going down, both in the north and south, um, it's not feasible yet. So they're still hoping that the National League could return in late March, and the group's going to meet again on the week beginning the 15th of February, but before then, no training's going to be possible.
0: Through GAA, I suppose, Lauren, as well, that's a particular blow because there's a real community aspect to that. And it's, you know, it's a very interactive and um, and kind of
4: it's, it's
0: a sport embedded in, in the community as well. So that will be a blow to, to, to big fans of GAA. What about Sporty Scoop this week coming out on Wednesday? What can we look forward to, Lauren?
12: So this week we're going to be joined by the QUB Boat Club and we're going to be chatting about how they've still managed to compete and sort of have some activities despite the restrictions they're also going to be taking part in the return of our now world-renowned game Don't Scoop All Your Eggs in One Basket
0: I was wondering where do, Don't Scoop All Your Eggs in One Basket had gone because I'd missed it but I'm, I'm delighted to see that it's made a return to the top tier of international sporting activity
12: Yeah, I think it's everybody's been waiting on the return at Britain's <laughs> 2021 and, and you'll be taking apart
0: it, the Six Nations as well, won't you?
12: Yeah, but myself, Tiernan and Mark, we're going to dissect Ireland's hopeful victory today. And we'll also be talking about this weekend's Irish Premiership and Premier League football and looking ahead to the Australian Open, which starts on Monday.
0: Now tell me about the Australian Open, because there's been so much in the news about that over the last couple of days. What's the score there?
12: So they are allowing fans into the Australian Open because obviously Australia's dealt with the COVID situation a lot better. It's obviously a severely reduced capacity. Around 30,000 fans will be allowed to go every day. There have been some problems. A lot of the players were uh, flown out to Australian chartered flights and they had periods of isolation. And then this week there were a few members who tested positive, but it hasn't affected most of the warm up games. They've still gone ahead. Annie Murray, unfortunately, won't be participating in the, this year's tournament. Um, through injury and COVID reasons. Um, but it's still likely to go ahead. It's meant to start on Monday and it should be exciting. Obviously Federa and Djokovic are going in as favourites and the Williams sisters will be involved in the women's tournament. So it does look really exciting and thankfully there will be some fans.
0: Yeah. A final question on tennis, I suppose, Lauren, while I have you here. It seems to me that for as long as I can remember at the top tiers of tennis, it was the, it was the Williams sisters, it was Federer and it was Djokovic. And then you sort of had Murray, who was in and out and, and plagued by injury. And in some ways, nothing seems to have changed. I know you watch tennis. You're a tennis fan. I mean, are, are, there, are there new players coming up who will soon be taking the positions of the likes of Djokovic and Federer?
12: Um, I think at the minute, they're still very much at the top of their game. Obviously, you have Nadal to throw in there as well. And the women's side, it seems there's a lot of young British women coming through as well who could possibly challenge. So it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, the Australian Open is normally quite competitive. Um, Djokovic is normally up there, but you wouldn't rule out Federer pushing him all the way.
0: Fantastic. Listen, Lauren, thank you so much as always. Lauren McCann there from the Sporty Scoop giving us an update on all things sporty at this week. Thank you so much. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on tonight's show. I want to thank all of our guests who have appeared on the show this evening. I want to thank my fantastic news team here at The Scoop, in particular, Dara Tibbs, head of technology for Queen's Radio, for piecing the whole thing together. Uh, Don't forget, you can catch up with The Scoop all week. On Mondays, we have The Good News Scoop, Tuesdays, Trendy Scoop, Wednesdays, Sporty Scoop, Thursdays, Eco Scoop, Fridays, Mental Health Scoop, and we will see you. Next Sunday, back on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company this evening. This has been The Scoop on Sunday, Nanite. from the Queen's Students' Union, The Scoop.